Before Nancy and I moved to Connecticut, we lived in New Hampshire, and we uh, worked at Windsor Hills Camp, and I were involved in planting a church, but for many years we attended uh, the Loudoun New Beginnings Church, the Nazarene, uh, right near the Capitol. And because our kids were of a particular age, we were involved in the youth group activities there. One particular Christmas, uh, the youth pastor came and talked to me, invited me to be a part of an event they were planning. It was a Christmas shopping event, and the kids were all going to go to the mall, and they were going to have time to shop for their parents for Christmas, but the youth pastor has set up a scavenger hunt for them in the mall, and it was a people scavenger hunt. And uh, he had invited 20, no, no, it's not there. I decided I didn't have the courage for that. She's asking me, did I remember to put the picture on the screen of what I'm gonna tell you, and I decided, no, I wasn't doing that. Um, He invited 20 people from the church to go hang out at the mall for those two hours, and the kids had a notepad, and they were supposed to find their family members, the folks from their church in the mall, who were just out there hanging out, doing what you do on December 14th at the mall. Some of us, however, were incognito. Three or four of us were costumed to make it more difficult to find us. And so uh, I was one of those who was invited to be costumed. And so I had a curly blonde wig on, sunglasses, one of those parka winter coats that has like the fur trim all around it. And I just sat in the food court sipping coffee for two hours Someone took a picture of that. It's actually on my Facebook page, but it looks so weird. I, I, Tanya and I talked about me putting it up there to see if you could recognize me uh, in the photo, but I didn't have the courage uh, to do that. Um, not very many of the teens, who, all of whom I knew very well, found me, and I'm not confident that both my sons found me. You would think they would know. Well, maybe you wouldn't. I mean, the curly blonde wig really changes a person's um, identity. Even though I was right there in front of them, they just, they just didn't recognize me. There are, there are a good number of stories in Scripture that talk about situations or places where what was true is plain, but people don't see it. It's not easily understandable. It's hard for people to put the pieces together. We have this interesting story in in Acts where Saul, a Jewish disciple who's been persecuting the church, he's, he's a very religious man. He's trying to do what his religion teaches him to do in an emotional and passionate kinds of way, but he's on this horse riding down the road to Damascus when suddenly he sees this bright light, he gets knocked off his horse, and he has this conversation with he doesn't know who, and the voice says to him, Paul, or Saul, what do you think you're doing? And Paul's like, uh, and who is this? And Jesus speaks to who was once named Saul, whom he will rename Paul, and says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And all of a sudden, 
Paul can't see anything, and it takes another disciple to come and pray for Saul so that the scales can fall off his eyes, and he can finally see what should have been right in front of him all the time, that this Jesus, this Messiah, came to demonstrate his love to all humanity. When we read the story of Easter, we have Mary come to the tomb, right? And she sees the stone rolled away. Eventually, she notices a gardener there in the garden, and she doesn't recognize who the gardener is. And so she's there to do for the body of Jesus what the Jewish burial customs require. And yet even though she's focused on caring for Jesus, her mind has him dead. And so she can't see him alive. And he's standing right beside her. And she looks at him and says, hey, you know, Jesus' body is gone. Do you know where he is? She's saying this to Jesus, right? Because her mind has gotten locked into some categories that don't make it possible for her, that keep it from being possible for her from seeing what is right in front of her. And it isn't until he speaks and says her name, Mary, that all of a sudden, Everything becomes clear, and she knows it's Jesus. And all the categories, all the presuppositions, all the presumptions, they sort of crumble away. And for a moment, clarity breaks through, and she's able to see what's right in front of her face. I'd like to read to you this morning a part of that story. It comes from Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. And since this is the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I would invite you to stand for the reading. Luke 24, 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? 
and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Lord, help us to hear your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. These two folks who meet up with Jesus on the road are disciples, perhaps not of the immediate 12, but certainly a part of those who are closest to Jesus. They knew what had happened in Jerusalem. They were shocked that this traveler didn't also know. I mean, everyone knew what happened in Jerusalem, didn't they? I mean, the fact that they assumed this tells us something about the scope, the magnitude of the events in Jerusalem. This crucifixion didn't happen in some quiet corner of the state that no one ever noticed. This was a downtown event, a larger-than-life event. This was everyone's eyes glued to the television kind of an event. In fact, their comments almost reveal a little bit of disdain for this traveler who seems to be so clueless. Are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened? You can sort of hear the judgment in their voice. Like, don't you ever watch the evening news? How could you be so clueless? This was such a large scale event. Do you understand the irony there? These two guys who don't know Jesus is standing right in front of them, who, who can't see that this is Jesus, are accusing Jesus of being blind and ignorant, of being clueless, of not understanding. These two go on. They, they identify their dreams. We had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. We had hoped that Jesus was going to help us throw off Roman rule. We had hoped that Jesus was going to redeem and restore Israel. We had hoped, but our rulers killed him and Jesus is dead. They're saying to Jesus, who's standing right in front of them, who though he's standing right in front of them, he, they, they can't see. But now some of our ladies are saying, they go on, that Jesus is not dead, that he's alive again. And some of our friends went to the tomb and discovered it's empty. And, and though they don't see Jesus, we don't know what to think. And, you know, for, for every person who has ever lived, for every person who isn't sure what to think, just like he does for these folks, 
Jesus always answers and fills in the gaps for us. Jesus, at some point in our lives, reveals himself to us, and we get a chance to see him for who he is. You get that chance. They get this chance. And for these two guys, this is what that chance looked like. This is how Jesus deals with these two to help open their eyes so that they can see what's standing right in front of them. These two will report that beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus explains how all of the scriptures apply to himself. This is the sermon. We know it began with Moses. And when the gospel writer says Moses, he's not talking about Moses as a prophet. He's talking about the first five books of the, of the Bible, which was called the books of Moses. And so it may have been that the sermon went something like this. From Genesis, Jesus would have cited the purpose of God in the creation of Israel. In Genesis 12, Jesus would have said, through the line of Abraham, God will bless all nations of the world, and Jesus will be born from the line of Abraham. In Genesis 49, we are told that the scepter, the rod of authority, would not pass from Judah until he to whom it belongs would come, and the obedience of the nations will be his. Jesus will come from the line of Judah, from David's kingdom. From the prophet Samuel, we're told that one of David's descendants would sit on an eternal throne. From the prophet Isaiah, we're told that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and the son will be called Emmanuel, God with us, and his kingdom will be without end. Isaiah the prophet tells us so much about Jesus. We're told that the Messiah will need to suffer, that he would be humiliated, that men would beat him and spit on him. We're told that Messiah will give his life for his people, that he would die prematurely, that he would have no offspring, that he would be silent before his accusers. But after his death, we're told, God would indeed glorify him. And this suffering Messiah will come from David's line. In Isaiah, we learn the names of the one who's going to come, the wonderful counselor, the ever lasting father, the mighty God, the prince of peace. We are told that Messiah will be a stumbling block for his own people. In Isaiah, we even hear the prophecies related to John the Baptist. There will be a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. From the prophet Hosea, we learn that Messiah must make a sojourn in Egypt and that out of Egypt, the Messiah would be called. In Micah, we learn that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The prophet Daniel proclaims, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Zechariah tells us that Messiah, the king, will enter Jerusalem on a donkey, just as Jesus does on Palm Sunday. And again and again and again in the Psalms, we see snapshots of Jesus, men gambling for the clothes at the foot of the cross, echoes of Jesus' final words, images of the way that Jesus would die, even foreshadowing of the very words the, the soldiers would use to taunt him as Jesus died. And while this stranger on the road to Emmaus works his way through the Old Testament 
showing how the Old Testament scriptures point the truth to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the hearts of these two travelers burn inside their chests. Here is a man who understood what the scriptures were trying to reveal. Have you ever had an experience where what was previously not clear suddenly, maybe instantaneously, becomes clear? Where your eyes are open and like Paul, the, the scales fall off your eyes and you understand? I remember the day I was sitting in my study in Virginia Beach. Nancy and I were on staff at a church there. I was reading the book called Shepherding by Eugene Stowe. I had started into the book and on the very first and second pages was these, these words. If you are contemplating going into the ministry and have not yet been to seminary, stop reading this book right now and go to seminary. I was reading that book as a part of contemplating going to seminary. And I saw those words and it was like they caught on fire on the page. And I had been wrestling with how to pursue my education and, and how to pursue pastoral ministry. And the, the district superintendent had called me and said, do you think you're ready to, have to take a church? Do you think, you know, and I had taken some graduate courses in religion and, and all of a sudden I'm just reading right along, praying, Lord, what should I do? And the, the words on the page, it's just that clear sometimes. I wish I could say it was that clear every day. It's not always that clear, but there are these times when the scales fall off our eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it becomes clear to us in a moment what is right in front of our face. Should I have been able to figure that out before then? Probably, but I hadn't, and I can't tell you all of why I hadn't. I just know that in that moment, everything became clear. These two guys on the road to Emmaus, they are confused. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but the recent events in Jerusalem had clouded their minds to the, to the, to the facts, and they couldn't figure out how to put this all together. And they're so confused that even though Jesus is standing right there in front of them, they, they can't see the truth. They don't have the categories of thinking to be able to understand that this is Jesus. There are moments in all of our lives when the truth becomes clear. Maybe just for a moment, but long enough for us to understand and know for certain. Before that moment, the truth may have been clouded by all kinds of things. Maybe by the way we were raised or or by what our spouses believed. Maybe the circumstances of life were hard or you were never exposed to the truth. There could be hundreds of reasons a person is not exposed to the truth. I remember one day when preaching when I used a wrong word in my sermon. I was talking about the tenets of the faith. T-E-N-E. -E. E-T, that's the word 
tenet, a principle of the faith. And I used instead the word tenant, T-E-N-A-N-T, which is the person who rents your apartment. After the sermon, and I considered myself a reasonably educated individual who probably knows the meanings of most of the words that I use. And after the service, an elderly lady walked up to me and said, oh, pastor, did you know there's a difference between the word tenant and tenant? I said, what are you talking about? She said, you use the word tenant instead of tenant today in your preaching. And a tenant is someone who rents an apartment, and a tenant, T-E-N-E-T, is a principal. And the truth of the matter was, which I immediately confessed to her, I had never seen nor read the word T-E-N-E-T in my life before that moment. I didn't know there was a difference, because I just had never seen that other word before. I had never read it, I'd heard it, obviously, and just mistaken it as a double meaning for the word T-E-N-A-N-T. And I guess if you're, if you're never exposed to something, how on earth are you ever going to know what it is? I mean, we have these blind spots in our lives, all of us, and unless something happens and something challenges our blindness or a person we love kindly woke up and says to us, you know, it's not what you think. There's, there's something different, there's something more. The way this particular story goes, the travelers invite Jesus in for food at the end of the conversation. The journey from Jerusalem to where they were was about seven miles, and the Bible tells us that Jesus had planned to go on, but at the invitation, he goes in, it's getting closer to nightfall. He goes in and he sits down and has dinner with them. And as he reaches out to bless and break the bread, something about the setting, something about the intimacy around the table, something about the tearing of the bread. And these two folks, all of a sudden, it all comes together. It's like that moment on Wheel of Fortune when you finally figure out what that puzzle says. It clicks in a moment and you know, of course, all the time I should have been able to figure this out. This was right in front of my face and they say, it's Jesus. And in that moment, they know everything. They've heard all the scriptures. They've heard all the prophecies that, that verify that Jesus was the Messiah. They saw all the correlations. All of a sudden, they remember what the women have said. They remember the tomb is empty. And they're thinking about, could Jesus be alive? And there he sits right in front of them. And it only takes a second for them to recognize that this is Jesus. The man who was once a stranger is the master they've been following all along. We don't know what it was that allowed them to understand. Maybe they were present that day when Jesus broke bread and fed 5,000 people with it. Maybe something about the breaking of bread triggered a chord in their mind. Maybe the Holy Spirit spoke a word in their heart 
and helped them to understand. But whatever it was, in spite of all the questions they had previously, it becomes clear to them that Jesus is alive, that he is God's Messiah, and that he has been raised from the dead. Scripture tells us in the next verses what they did. I mean, it was approaching evening when they invited Jesus in for dinner. And so it's getting close to dark now, and we know there's a danger of bandits on the road, but these guys are so excited about what they've seen that they hop back out and run the seven miles, probably most of which happened in the dark, back to Jerusalem, because the news they had was life-changing news. It was overwhelming news. Everything that we believed is true. Jesus is the Messiah of God. Our hopes are justified. He is alive. All the promises that relate to him are true. Everything he said to us while he was with us, it's reliable. You know, it's, I guess it's not surprising that in a world like ours, filled with violence and hatred, that some folks would find it hard to believe that there is a God. But every once in a while, God rolls back the curtain and gives us a glimpse of himself and reminds us that he has not left us alone, that he still loves us, and that his desire is to welcome us into his family. For some of you, perhaps, today is the day you get a glimpse of Jesus. Today is the day when the scales fall off your eyes and you see clearly that this Jesus really is God's son, that he does really love you, that he wants to invite you to follow him and become the kind of person he can be proud of. You may even see him when we break bread together at the end of the service, when we eat the bread and we drink the cup and the communion meal and are reminded how much he loves you. We already know that wherever the children of God carry out the mission of Christ, to love the world, to care for the poor, to feed the hungry, to care for the dying, to do what is needed for those in distress around us. We know the humble Christ is always present. But we should also know that when the bread is broken and the children of God are called to his table, he will always be seen as we remember that he died for us so that we can live. You have an opportunity today to see Jesus clearly. Right now, you're hearing an invitation to enter his family, the invitation that Jesus makes to all of us. If you want to become a son or daughter of God today, this is what you have to do. You humbly ask him to forgive you for the ways you've fallen short up till now in your life. And you ask him to be your master 
while promising to be his disciple. He wants to teach you and demonstrate his loving care to you. And the first step into the family of God is as simple as that. In a moment, we're going to receive communion together. We're going to receive communion at the end of the service each week till Pentecost. The communion meal is issued by Jesus to his disciples. And it's open to everyone who has invited Christ to be their Lord and Master or, to, who, or who desires Christ to be their Lord and Master. Two or three thousand years ago, well, I said that wrong, three or four thousand years ago, God speaks to Moses and he says, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And we read in Exodus 13, 14, the fact that plagues hit Egypt to convince Pharaoh to let the Israeli people go. That in time, Pharaoh relents and lets the people go. And that to honor and commemorate the fact that God called his people out of Egypt and liberated them from slavery, that they were to celebrate Passover. And every year at Passover, four cups of wine are set on the table, and after the first two are consumed, the meal happens. At the end of the meal, the third cup is picked up. And when we pick up the story of Jesus' passion and death in the gospel, it's about the time Jesus is picking up the third cup. And the scriptures say that after dinner, after the meal that happens in the middle of Passover, Jesus took the third cup and shared it with all his disciples. And the name of that cup is the cup of salvation. It's the cup where Jesus tells his people that in this third cup, this, this cup of salvation, he would establish a new covenant, a new way for men and women everywhere to come to God. And it's by the forgiveness of sins, and the cup represents his blood which washes away our sins. And by the gift of his body, which is life breathed into us by his Holy Spirit, that we could become sons and daughters of God and enter his family. And so this morning when we receive the cup and the bread, we're remembering that Jesus died that we could be born into his family. And that as we participate, we remember how much he loved us, what he was willing to endure to open this way to the Father. I'm gonna ask those who are invited to help serve communion to come at this time. And Gary, if you would pass out the, the cup and the bread. 
And this morning I'd invite you in a moment to stand and we'll cycle through the exterior aisles and return to our seats from the front, but to take a piece of bread and simply dip it in the juice and eat that and remember that Christ died for you. And as you do it, remember how much he loves you. Would you stand and come? May you always, moment by moment, see the face of Jesus clearly. And may his face inspire a confidence in you that you can live as his ambassador day by day, trusting that every word of his promises for you are true to the glory of God now and forever. Amen.